Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, one of the living legends of American art history, Deborah Willis. This is going to be a longer introduction than usual, but I think you'll hear why. A month or two ago, I was talking with a museum director about a Black artist who has made portraiture core to her practice. The museum director said something to me about how, for some of her trustees, portraiture seemed a little too conservative, almost old-fashioned. I had just spent a couple days flipping through the collection websites of museums such as the Yale University Art Gallery, the Harvard Art Museums, and the MFA Boston. The portraits I'd seen in those collections had been almost entirely of white people. Out of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pictures, there might have been two exceptions. I related the story to the museum director, who reacted with a, well, yeah, duh. She was right, of course. I knew what I was going to see. It's just that suddenly portraiture and representation seemed even more important to me than they had before my web surfing. A few weeks later, a new book arrived in the mail. It was Deborah Willis's The Black Civil War Soldier, A Visual History of Conflict and Citizenship. It's new from New York University Press. The book joins 99 photographs of black Civil War soldiers and black men and women who served within military regiments with primary source materials, such as letters, to provide a fuller picture of how black men and women fought the war. Both IndieBound and Amazon offer the book for about $35. This is a necessary book on its own, but also is a corrective to recent art museum practice. What I'm about to say is not in Dr. Willis's book, and I don't mean to suggest it informed her, but it informs me, and it should inform the potential audience for Dr. Willis's book. In 2013, the Metropolitan Museum of Art organized the exhibition Photography in the American Civil War. We featured it here on the MAN podcast. The catalog for the exhibition features 234 pictures. Only three are portraits of black soldiers. One shows two black guides. One other picture is a group portrait of black laborers at a union-controlled Virginia wharf. Depending on how you choose to count, three to five pictures out of those 234 show black men or women fighting for union or working for the Union Army and Navy. By the way, out of the two million men who fought in the Union Army and Navy, about 200,000 of them were black. That's 10%. Five out of 234 suggests that the historical inequality that we see represented in the collections of America's oldest and most august art museums continues in contemporary scholarship and exhibition practice. Deborah Willis is university professor and chair of the Department of Photography and Imaging at the Tisch School of the Arts and Department of Social and Cultural Analysis at New York University. She has written or contributed to at least 28 books, has won two NAACP Image Awards and a MacArthur Genius Fellowship. Just this week, the College Art Association awarded her its 2021 Distinguished Lifetime Achievement Award for writing on art. On the second segment, Lighty Churchman at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. But first, Deborah Willis, after the break. Explore an ancient trading center in Return to Palmyra, a new online exhibition from Getty. Discover rare photos and etchings of the city, including famous ruins that no longer exist, and learn how Palmyra has transformed over time. Read an interview with Palmyra's former director of antiquities and museums, Walid Khaled al-Sad, who grew up in this famous Syrian desert oasis where he can trace his lineage back five generations. Dive into Palmyra's history and culture from the prehistoric to modern period with art historian Joan Aruz. Return to Palmyra is a dual-language exhibition presented in both English and Arabic. Learn more and start exploring at getty.edu slash palmyra. This fall, Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2020, a version, in partnership with the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. 
The fifth edition of the Biennial, which highlights artists working throughout greater Los Angeles, features new installations, videos, films, sculptures, performances, and paintings, many commissioned specifically for Made in L.A. The exhibition will show the 30 artists at both institutions, two versions that make up the whole. Made in L.A. 2020, a version, on view this fall at the Hammer and the Huntington. Find details and sign up for updates at hammer.ucla.edu and at huntington.org. Hi, everybody. I want to tell you about a free new app called Bloomberg Connects. It lets you access museums, galleries, and cultural spaces around the world, anytime, anywhere. The app doesn't address just a single institution or one exhibition, but instead takes a portfolio approach by offering access to many different cultural institutions through a single download. On Bloomberg Connects, you can discover new cultural offerings, including some with which you might not be as familiar, creating exciting opportunities for you to find new ideas that address your interests across geographically disparate institutions. Bloomberg Connects currently has guides available for many institutions in New York and London, including New York's MoMA PS1. It's presenting Marking Time, Art in the Age of Mass Incarceration, an exhibition informed by the National Book Critics Circle Award shortlisted book of the same title, through April 4th. Bloomberg Connects was created by Bloomberg Philanthropies to make arts and culture accessible to more people around the world. Download Bloomberg Connects today to access digital guides, to hear from artists, curators, and experts, and to get the stories behind exhibitions. You can download Bloomberg Connects on the Apple app and Google Play stores, and from app.bloombergconnects.org slash modernartnotes. And we're back. Deborah Willis, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Let's start with a specific picture, because I think that will help lay the ground a bit, and it's also very much within the spirit of your book. The picture I want to start with is a portrait of a man named Nick Biddle. The picture is now in the collection of the Temple University Library, and it's in the book, of course. We'll have it on manpodcast.com. Biddle was, and this amazes me, 65 years old when the war started, which was itself no small accomplishment in mid-19th century America. Who was he, and why is this an important telling picture? That photograph is an entry into the discussion because Biddle, I'm, I'm from Pennsylvania, and uh, he was from Pennsylvania, in Pottsville, as they say, which when I grew up, it was Pottstown. And so Nicholas Biddle was a man that was the first known, they said the first known man who was injured during the Civil War. And Biddle, mainly because there was a regiment from Pennsylvania going down to Washington, D.C., and when they entered Baltimore, there were a number of um, Confederates still in Baltimore and, and, and others that attacked him. He was not a soldier because black men could not join the, the army at that time, but he worked closely with the corporal, cap, with the captain there in that regiment. He was prevented mainly because he was black. He could not fight, so he worked with a man by the name of Captain James Wren, he was the commanding officer for the Washington Artillery. Biddle worked as his assistant, and he had a uniform. And as he marched with the group of white soldiers through the streets of Baltimore, a group in Baltimore knocked him out, throwing rocks at them, and he was hit. He had a head injury, 
but they kept moving forward as they moved forward to Washington. And eventually when they arrived in Washington, Abraham Lincoln saw his injury and he still had the handkerchief that he wiped the blood off. And it was still part of this kind of sense of identity and performance in this man who was not able to fight in the war, but was determined to be a part of, of the fight. That's basically his story. When he returned after the war to Pennsylvania, he was photographed. And his photograph, he had a, had a cabinet card photograph made of him. And it says, of Pottsville, Pennsylvania, the first man wounded in the Great American Rebellion, Baltimore, April 18, 1861. But he was, he's still wearing his uniform. One button is missing. The bloodied handkerchief is passed in his jacket, is placed in his jacket. And he's looking not into the camera, but kind of a very solemn look away from the camera. So we feel his age. We feel his commitment and all of that based on this portrait of dress. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a really remarkable picture. And he looks, I, I think, younger than his 65 years. He looks great. Um, <laughs> I see this picture and I see within it a revision of the common or usual understanding of, of American patriotism. If we go back to the revolution, the first man killed by British troops in Boston was Crispus Attucks, a man of African and Native American descent. And as just as you noted that Biddle's, you know, the primariness, if you will, of Biddle's injury was understood in its own time so well that the president of the Union greeted him. Attucks's primacy and death, I'm hating my phrasing here, was also immediately well understood. But in the context of 1770, Attucks was mostly represented as being white by printmakers such as Henry Pelham and Paul Revere. And pictorially, thanks to photography, Biddle's blackness can, you know, could not be denied or erased. And one of the things I found myself thinking as I went through this book is how as part of the project by which soldiers and often their wives made sure they were photographed, that they were taking charge of their own narratives in a way that addicts couldn't have. Yeah, that it's it's really fascinating that you have read it as that. I guess I grew up in, as I mentioned, Philadelphia, but we had, quote, at that time, Negro History Week. And the images that they showed of Christmas addicts always had a tint to it. We knew this, the first black man, you know, first man shot was a black man, was the narrative that we grew up with in the 1960s, 50s, 60s of, of learning your understanding, your Negro History Week lessons. So that's amazing that you connected the two and, and it's, I love that, that I did not see that as the first man wounded, the first man killed in these major wars in, in this country. That's that's really fascinating. You know, I, I hadn't thought of it until you just reminded me of, of your Pennsylvania background. But one of the very few and maybe one of like two surviving Paul Revere prints of the Boston Massacre that shows Attucks as a black man is in Philadelphia. It's at the Library Company of Philadelphia. So one of the, the very, you know, one or two or three that survived showing Attucks as black is actually in Philly. Yeah, I, I love that place as a research source for my research. I used it for years and 
and always found some you know, unusual, unique, different stories to tell. And I would love to be able to print every photograph that I or print that I discovered in that collection. One of the storylines that really runs through the entire book is presentation of, of, of self-identity and the reason or a reason that's important in the context of 1860s America is that in the years and decades before the Civil War, Americans north or south or west for that matter, who were culturally constructed as white, argued that people not like them, people who weren't white, lacked the capacity for self-government, that anyone who wasn't considered white just simply could not participate in the American Republican experiment. It was an idea that in many ways is at the very heart of the construction of whiteness in American polity, but it's really also at the heart of American polity full stop at this time. Is there a kind of embedded in this book an argument that one reason black soldiers sat for pictures, expensive pictures, as they went off to war, that they were maybe conscious of, of making rejoinders to that idea? Possibly. But at the same time, they understood their sense of why the book is in terms of conflict and citizenship. They understood that they were human and they understood the whole aspect of what humanity meant and what it meant in terms of posing for a camera, wearing a uniform, that they were making decisions about their future because the decisions were not part of the larger culture in terms of how to view black people. I think that's a central framework for the idea of imaging themselves as, quote, men, but also free men to be in charge of their future and to determine to create a narrative um, through the visual experience, through the visual experience of photography. That I think that that compelled them to make images of themselves and to reinforce their identity through this aspect of photography. One of the really effective things you do across the book is to present not just pictures of black soldiers, their regiments, often themselves and their wives, but you present these pictures alongside letters written by, and in some cases about, black soldiers. One example is from 1865 at the Beinecke at Yale. It shows Brooklyner Alexander Heritage or Heritage Newton wearing unusually bold sergeant stripes. I think the sergeant stripes are hand-colored. Who was Newton, and why could he not have made this photograph of himself in uniform in 1861 when he first impressed himself upon a Union regiment? Oh, Newton is a story that I learn more and more every day as I researched of his story. Newton, um, Heritage of Newton, I love the name, Heritage as well. You know, if it's self-naming, he understood what Heritage meant. But Heritage Newton was a man that was born in the South, worked in the South in terms of the experience of growing up, but he also wanted to fight. And as a result of this, his experience of wanting to fight for the freedom, but he also he also worked. I'm just trying. I'm, I'm visualizing his experiences as, as he wrote about um, helping to black men and women to part of the Underground Railroad. He wanted to also create a way for black people to be free and help them and engage in in opportunities for them to to work with their freedom. 
But here in that photograph, again, I don't know if he enhanced the colors, hand-tinted the photograph, but to see his pose, but to understand that, as he says, I engaged myself with the great civil war, the war of the rebellion. I went to the company of the 13th Regiment of Brooklyn. I went to the front as the United States was not taking, was not taking Negro troops. But he was determined as a freeborn person that he wanted to help Black people for their freedom. And he was actively working as a ship's cook in New York. And he was reunited with his mother in Brooklyn. He was, you know, as a teenager, when he lived in the South, he worked in terms of the Underground Railroad. But he ended up being a a minister, an AME minister. And to read his experience, his long life and his experience of creating a sense of not only self, but also a sense of community through this uh, religious and spirituality, he understood what it meant for an opportunity to envision freedom, to understand the right of men. And he wrote a, a wonderful autobiography about speaking within the notion of what it meant to work in this community in Brooklyn, but also to move forward to fight for the war. And to have the opportunity to photograph, to be posed in this image was, was really fine. His language, his, under, his mastery of the language is beautiful. So he writes, at last, I'm going to read this here, at last things quieted down and we found an opportunity to put him on this mystic train and send him to a climb where we, he enjoyed freedom. This mystic train of underground railroad, understanding where a man who was about to be killed by the slaveholders where he was uh, running away, but the idea that he understood what it meant to, to help someone move forward as a young man. So throughout his life, he continued to find a place for humanity and for his generosity and his concern for humankind. And that's where I see his story was an important story to explore and also to find that connection with the photograph, I felt was just so important for this, for this research and for this book. And that's why I really wanted to explore the experience and, and debunk myths of black people couldn't read and write, but to enhance the stories of the black soldiers and men and women who could tell their story through the experience of writing and through the experience of photography. One of the things I really love about the photograph of Newton, who's posing with another man, Daniel Lathrop or Lathrop, is that Newton looks so comfortable being photographed. I mean, this is a time when to be photographed wasn't necessarily comfortable. You had to hold very still, for example. In fact, you can see in the pose he's holding as he's being photographed that, I mean, that's a pose that makes it easier to be very, very still. And he looks relaxed and comfortable, whereas Lathrop to his left is definitely stiffer. (laughs) And Newton is almost smiling. (laughs) I know, I was about to say that. He has this you know, like this sense of wisdom that he sent in, again, as we talk about the message that these faces are, um, these eyes are telling us. You know, and not, another thing that he says, 
it's funny here that I, I find just, I, I smile when I read it. He says, I had no ill feeling for the Southern white people. Some of them had been my best friends. <laughs> I just love this. But this was not a personal matter, but a question of national issue involving the welfare of millions. And my soul was on fire for the question, slavery or no slavery, to be forever settled. And that too, as, 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 and that too, as soon as possible. So when thinking about that, that he understood that slavery, that question of slavery had to be settled through the election of, of Abraham Lincoln in 1860. And even though, as he says, he had white friends, you know, so just, and, and again, debunking this, this myth of relationships that, that men had, that black men had toward white people. So he's really having this exchange with his soul and his conscience with this sense of this political sense that he mastered in here. So I think that that's really important. There's also that he understands what the war is about at a time, you know, in, in 61 and, and, you know, well into 62, lots of white Northerners are still only considering the war as a question of republicanism versus oligarchical aristocracy or, you know, and, and, and are choosing not to think of it as a war with slavery at its at its heart. American art operated that way, for example. So for for most of these soldiers, most of the men pictured in the book, would these photographs that they're posing for in, in uniform have been among their earliest opportunities to present a self-determined image of themselves? I believe so, because in terms of the opportunity, not for the for the enslaved men and people who were bonded, the men who were bonded, but the black men who were free. I know they visit the photographer studio in terms of some of the images that I found early on in the 1840s and 50s of, of black men entering into photographer studios and posing. But for men who were enslaved, I believe it was the first time that many of them had an opportunity on their own to walk into be photographed and making the choice of being photographed. There were others, of course, as we know from the Agassiz Zealy debate in photography, that many of the enslaved men and women were photographed in studios, but not by choice. And that's the experience that we see with the Agassiz images of by J.T. Zealy. We also know that the studios in the South, many of them had specific days for black people to enter the studio and specific doors so that black and blacks and whites did not enter into the photographer's studio at the same time. And again, we began to see that experience as a way of separating the aspects of segregation and that endured during that time and the opportunity for blacks to be make get their portraits made at that time we see happening as a result of the choice that black people made but also the choice that slave owners decided to have their um, human property photographed to show that one that they were they were also fighting the abolitionists visual visualizing black people who were enslaved and so here's an opportunity to see black men and women and children who were, quote, dressed properly, 
clothed and fed and healthy. So there were like two narratives that we're experiencing with the idea of photography at that time. Some of the most striking pictures in the book, such as in a tintype from the Greg French collection or another picture from Cornell's Crotch, Croc Library, we see husbands and wives posing together. The husband is in uniform and his wife, quite often in the most spectacular finery imaginable, <laughs> are choosing to be portrayed together. I don't know of, I have not seen anyway, a lot of pictures of white Northern soldiers choosing to be photographed this way. What, what do we know about how and why these soldier-wife portraits came to be and mattered to the people who made them? I don't know a lot about it. Um, there's not, you know, we've seen some of the photographs, but I believe in in my research and the act of being of a marriage was quote illegal for enslaved people, but um, in the North, the act of marriage was was significant, and the act of soldiering and just and making that decision to join the the 54th or the 55th and the different regiments, it was important for the soldiers to be photographed and specifically with their wives and their children. And white soldiers had the same experience in the South. Jeff Rosenheim curated a show at the Met to follow the Museum of Art on the Civil War. And there were images of family members also who visited the studio with their soldier sons, husbands, fathers was important also for both blacks and white soldiers to document this because no one knew who would return from the war. It was important also that mothers have photographs with their sons because many of the mothers, many of the photographs of the mothers and the letters that I found of the mothers indicated their concern for their well-being and their health. And some of the mothers wrote to Abraham Lincoln requesting that they take care of their son. And, and that's a reminder. So the question is, and I, I strongly believe that it was important for them to take the photographs with them as they were in the battlefield, on the battlefield, or they left to fight, or they were on the ships, because it had a sense of their purpose the purpose why they were fighting and the importance of being photographed and that sense of memory had constructed a, an experience for them to hold on to. So that sense of possessing the photograph while on the battlefield had an impact on them. And, and I think that that's a, an important aspect of being photographed with their wives and, and family members. Your book mostly features portraits and card or paper photographs of groups. Stereographs are hard for people to publish in books, but one of the most extraordinary pictures in the book is a stereograph of the 10th Army Corps, which is a regiment of black soldiers. And the photograph is made in Beaufort, South Carolina, which is just north of Savannah on the South Carolina coast. What is the context of this photos being made, which I guess is to say, how were these soldiers in Beaufort, South Carolina? And how would a picture like this have been read in the mid-1860s of, of black soldiers on southern, indeed, South Carolina territory? 
I love this image. And and my family's from Beaufort, South Carolina, so we say it differently in oh, different sorry. I'm, so I'm, that way, I'm a Californian, forgive me. I actually say Beaufort, and I've, <laughs> I've, I've said Beaufort all the time. So just in terms of, you know, we know that Cooley had a photographer. He was a traveling photographer and the itinerant photographer a lot in the South. So his photographs were, quote, as they say today, on the ground, right on the battlefield. But here, the importance of this is to see these are men, self-emancipated men, who joined the war, but their uniforms and the regiment, the way that they're seen. So when we begin to see the massive numbers of black troops in South Carolina, one of the many of the the larger and the most notorious and battles that happened um, in the early years of the war were in, in terms of in South Carolina. So here we see um, the message that's sent through this stereograph and the designer decided to make this larger than life stereograph. It's really important because we can begin to see the determination and the sense of bravery that these men had, the placement of the battlefield, the flag, the American flag, their company flag, and their dress. And that's where we see the 10th Army posed in that area in, in terms of that image. And the palmetto tree, it's in the image as well. And that's one of the signature trees of South Carolina. That's their that point. So when we begin to see placement in land, ownership, the battlefield, when we see how these men created um, the narrative with the experience of the photographer to represent black male identity in this larger stereograph. This picture was made in either 1863 or 64. Do you think it would have been read in contemporary America, at least the contemporary North, as a presentation of black men, soldiers on the land that had denied the most? Would it have would have been viewed would it have been viewed as a scene of union or black triumph? I think it on both sides, again, as we begin to see how the narratives are read in, in different places in the north, these photographs circulated as tourist photographs, but they also circulated as I read recently in an essay I had I wrote about a, a northern photographer these photographs were actually sent to, to the North and specifically to Massachusetts so they could see the people who were who fought and the people who were curious about the men who were moving into their communities, the black people who were there moving into their communities. And they wanted to imagine the lives of these people through these photographs. So when I see this photograph and I think through, when I read through some of the interviews of photographs that were used during this time period as not only as circulating as tourist images, but they were also images for the curious to see who's moving north, where are we making communities for these people, and moving forward to have a story about, about this sense of freedom, how they imagine these people seeing this. I would assume that the people who bought these photographs were pretty impressed with them. 
you know, they, you know, they live to this day in, 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 in duplicate form in many parts of the country, private and public collections. But as a reminder that these, these circulated during that time for multiple reasons. One, some in the South were frightened by these images. And then the others in the North were encouraged by the images. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed out the tree in the picture, too, because it's a magnificent tree. And, of course, trees were metaphorically loaded during the Civil War. Trees were common metaphors in poetry and art for the endurance and strength of union. And here is a (laughs) South Carolina tree enduring and kind of a South Carolina tree can be a metaphor for union, too, right? (laughs) Also, you know, as we can also see the experience of the tree branches, we can also have another horrific reading of that. But I think the placement of this image and the location of of this, we begin to see the battleground. We begin to see the houses in the in the background. We begin to say a, a building of a a strong force and de- and developing a strong force in that area. Your book includes lots of pictures of contrabands. Contrabands in the lingua franca of of the war were self-emancipated former slaves who moved toward and then behind Union lines and in so doing liberated themselves. There is a picture of uh, a group of, I think, th- 10 or so men and women behind the line of the 13th Massachusetts Infantry taken in 1863 or later. And it's it's uh, a striking photograph for lots of reasons, one of which is all 10 people are locked in on the camera and looking right at it as it's taking their picture. And among the things that we immediately understand about this picture is that these 10 people are happy, if not eager, to be photographed. We're... we're, we're Photographs of self-emancipated men and women behind Union lines like this common? Is this one exceptional? It's exceptional. There are a few images that I've used in other um, projects of, quote, contraband, and, and understanding that the range were mainly children and women. But here we see the mixture of men, older, younger, and children with women and a woman who is uh, definitely pregnant uh, in this image. So when we consider the fact that these are people who left plantations, who left homes to join and move and work with the Union, with the Union Army, they found ways to to be employed, but also to take care of their livelihood. And we don't know if these people are related, but we can see the connection, this, the young woman who is pregnant, who has her arm linked with the older woman who could possibly be her mother, that they're together when they, they're together in their plight for the future, but they were together in leaving the, the home, their home of their birth, which could have been up the plantation in an area in South Carolina. But the erectness of this image that they're you know sitting up they're looking directly into the photographer's lens and they're actually sending a sense, a message of freedom. And as they work through, but still using the term, their contraband that they were owned and now 
a part of the sense of freedom and that sense of where they're moving forward. So this is this is where I see, but also clothing that many the women who left had the clothes on their back or the clothes that they made for their mistresses and for their families. And so the clothing that they took with them, that they washed, you know, the washerwomen who were part of the war. And when I see the woman in this, look at the photograph of the woman that's in, in this image that's third from left, it appears, she appears as many of the images that I imagine of the washerwomen that I read about during this time with her scarf around her neck and the waistband. And so we, we see this, this range of clothing that's a part of this narrative of, of moving forward with the clothes on their back. The older woman has also removed the bonnet from her head. So was that a directive of the photographer or if she wanted her face to be seen. And that sense of recognition is significant in the posing of these images. I mentioned earlier that over and over again, you join pictures of people to letters they wrote or to letters that were written about them. good example is a letter written by Lewis Douglas to Helen Emilia Loguen, Loguen? Yeah. Who was Lewis Douglas? And, you know, why is this maybe a good example of, of how we get, how, how joining photographs to letters gives us a much fuller picture of the people in the book than just their photographs would? Douglas was the son of Frederick Douglas, and Logan was his fiance. Louis Douglas uh, wrote to her when um, the Battle of Fort Wagner and he wrote to her through their entire relationship. But he understood what I felt in this image. And of course, after I, after I finished research for the book, there was a book published of all of his letters that the two of them exchanged. And I was like, oh, I wish I had this letter with some of the letters. But he, he wrote about the loss of the experience of losing some of the men and um, women who were part of the his his regiment, which was the 54th, when Frederick Douglass had, quote, called to arms when he basically wrote the language for the broadside requesting that black men join the war, his two sons join. And so Louis Douglass was one. And he writes to his Amelia and he says, I've been in two fights and am unhurt. I'm about to go on another, I believe, tonight. Our men fought well on both occasions. The last was desperate. We changed that terrible battery on Morris Island, known as Fort Wagner. And we were repulsed with the loss of three killed and, and wounded. He escaped unhurt. So when we see his language, my thoughts are with you often. You are as dear as ever. Be good enough to remember it, as I have no doubt you will. I said before, we are on the eve of another fight, and I'm very busy, and I have just snatched a moment to write you. I must be brief. Shall I fall in the next fight, killed or wounded? I hope to fall with my face to the foe. So I, I, I just felt, I can feel the compassion that he wrote his 
not understanding his future or believing that he has a future, but understanding the reality of war. If I survive, I shall write you a long letter. And then he writes to Forrest of your city is wounded. George Washington is missing. Jacob Carter is missing. James Reason is wounded. And so he names people who are in the hospital who were wounded in the image, in the letter rather. But his image, he's in the studio. He's photographed in Boston. Um, Case and Chechel is the name of the photographer studio. He has his kepi hat on the table, but his arms are folded. You know, he's standing with this, as I call it, my manly man pose, you know, with, you know, chest up, sense of strength within the framing of this image. We have no doubt that I'm looking into this future of this man who's going to make a difference with this war. And this is before he goes south. And that's where I, I see the importance of his words. You know, he must be brief in writing her, responding to her letter or writing to her, but I'm thinking about you. And I think that sense of emotion as we think about the war and we think about the experience of what happened on the field, we get it firsthand through this experience of, of, of Lewis Douglas, who joined the war at the request of his father, but also for the future of black men over and over again in picture after picture, I love the pride with which men such as Lewis Douglas, who are sergeants in Lewis's case, a sergeant major, pose themselves in a way that foregrounds or pushes their sergeant stripes toward the viewer. You you know, that that, that manly man pose you 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 described has the benefit <laughs> of turning the for the, the biceps toward the camera ensuring that those stripes fill as much of, of the picture as possible. One of the really neat things that you did in the book is we don't just get soldiers here. We get pictures of other black men involved in the war. One of my favorite portraits in the book shows Thomas Morris Chester, who was not a soldier, but he and others who did the same work were an important part of the war, both to the, the, the soldiers, but also to people back home. So who was he, and what can you tell us, or what do you know about how he chose to be photographed here, what he's wearing? So Chester is a, uh, was a journalist, and he was a free man. Um, he lived in Pennsylvania, and he, was, he wrote, I think there are very few actual black men who were at the, at the site of... of battle, but he, he was one of the few. And the photograph, he worked, I'm trying to remember the name of the newspaper in Pennsylvania, yeah, the Philadelphia Press. So with that image, we see him not only decked out as a, dressed as, a, as an intellect, you know, intellectual as a, as a scholar, but we also see him in terms of a determined look in his face. So that's a, a, a way of, of reading his work within the war efforts and having that opportunity, we have a chance to see him at work. And so this image was, of course, dated probably after the people who own the photograph, uncertain about the, the, the years, but because later on he became, a, as a war correspondent, 
he was able to dictate and, and imagine and relate some of the reports of the war. Of, at first, he did not use his name, he used another name, but his coverage, as another scholar wrote, of, of the treatment of the injured and captured white officers and their black troops, and to, be, to do more than praise their bravery, however, it showed the depth in which man could sink in his pursuit of morally indefensible causes. He looked at the experience of how black soldiers took care of the captured white Confederates, but he also wrote about how the white Confederate white soldiers, the Confederates, when they were captured, how they responded to imprisonment. So the range of experience that he was able to document and and imagine and visualize for for the reader. He spent most of his time in Richmond and he was really significant in in just feeling the experience of the war and presenting the war as um, a difficult story to tell. As I mentioned that he was, as I think his mother was free and I think his father was was formerly enslaved, but it's reading his his story he was the son of an oyster man, and, you know, a man who worked in a self-emancipated woman from Baltimore. So we began to see his mother in terms of activism. But he also, later in life, he worked as an attorney and a diplomat to Liberia and an educator within that time frame. So at, at, in 64, he was 35 years old. And so he lived a significant life in terms of his activity. I love that in that picture, he is wearing kind of the Gilded Age era beard of the professional man. You know, you had to have you had to have the facial hair to indicate your professional status in those years. And he sure and he sure does. Two more. You published quite a number of images from an 1865 album, either commissioned or assembled by a white lieutenant of black enlisted men under his command. Was it common for white officers to commission or assemble or collect albums of the soldiers who fought under them? I think that I have, I'm just trying to think, I don't know if, if I would use the term common, but I would see it often in, in the research of the men, the white officers who, commander of the black troops, that they had albums and they had photographs made and, and hired photographers from you know John Ritchie to the images that are at, in Beinecke and, and the labs there and, and the collection there where we see um, Gayford and Spidal and then and that's in Rock Island, Illinois. And within the image here of Ritchie, we see the 54th. But the album is a beautiful album. Leather bound, gold leaf, and it has a sense of biblical hold to it as you see the, the last you see the cover of the album but the the gold class so when we think about the garrison family donating this to the african-american museum in, in dc we we can also imagine how important it felt for garrison to own the album and create the album and the images from Soldiers who are seated, standing, and in front of backdrops. That includes 
Robert Gould Shaw and, and his image early on. And there are two images of, of, of Shaw in, in the book who led the 54th. And one, I, I was just fascinated with the image of him. And then I wanted to, it was an early image of him as he was about to leave Boston and, you know, as a newly married man and to face this battle that he had no idea what was ahead of him. But the image of, the single image of, of of Robert Goulshaw is this young man to lead this fight and unfortunately dies in, in South Carolina, is, is an important part of this album. It's an important part of both black and white men who died together for this fight for freedom. Finally, how, if at all, did your ideas about the self-fashioning of black identity during the war change over the course of working on this book? It evolved and with great joy, <laughs> you know, because I love research and I love the effect it had on me. I think about, as I thought at that time, and I think today, how do we engage with um, cultural objects and like photography, but also political history at the same time? What do we think about black identity when, when it's specifically black male identity, when it was basically ignored during that time and, and the impact photography had on, on that story, on that story of black men in the war, how it evolved and how it engaged me and, and it emboldened me in terms of how to, as a mother, what did mothers feel about losing their sons and sending their sons to war, mothers who were enslaved and mothers who were free. And in ending with that story of, of men that you just brought up, I'd love to, uh, like on page 188, there is a story of a chaplain, and his name is Garland White, and who had been sold from his mother when he was a small boy. And he is back in Virginia and in Richmond, and the troops have met a woman who asked them where were they from, constantly looking for this man who she wanted to identify. And she writes, um, so he says, some of the boys knowing that I lived in Ohio soon found me and said, chaplain, here's a lady that wishes to see you. I quickly turned and following the soldier until coming to a group of colored ladies, I was questioned as follows. What is your name, sir? My name is Garland H. White. What is your mother's name? Nancy. Where was she born? In Hanover County in this state. Where was you sold from? From this city. What was the name of the man who bought you? Robert Toombs. Where did he live? In the state of Georgia. Where did you leave him? At Washington. Where did you go then? To Canada. Where do you live now? In Ohio. This is your mother, Garland whom you are now talking to, who spent 20 years of grief about her son. So when I read that, I cried, mainly because this is a woman who studied the loss of her son and tried to map his well-being, to find, ask questions, to locate him in different ways. So 
you know, he ends up saying, I can't express the joy I felt at this happy meeting of my mother and her and other friends. But imagine I have witnessed several such scenes among the other colored troops, but he never thought it would happen with him. That a mother who spent a lifetime, 20 years of her life looking for uh, these soldiers who walked through the town and knowing that she lost her son as a, as a young child. And when I think about that aspect of identity, black male identity and that experience, it that really touched my life about family and the necessary stories that families hold in the Civil War. Deborah Willis, thank you. Thank you. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is collaborating with Duke Arts and Duke Health to present an unprecedented outdoor exhibition and public awareness campaign by nationally renowned artist Carrie Mae Weems. Resist COVID Take Six emphasizes the disproportionate impact of the deadly virus on the lives of communities of color through large-scale banners and window clings, billboards, posters, street signs, and more. Resist COVID Take Six has taken shape on the exterior walls and windows of the Nasher Museum and Rubenstein Arts Center at the front gate of Sarah P. Duke Gardens and the Carpentry Shop, home of the MFA in Experimental and Documentary Arts. Resist COVID Take Six allows the Nasher Museum to present an impactful outdoor art experience safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Later in the fall, Resist COVID Take Six will extend into the surrounding community. The Nasher Museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. The museum is available by appointment to Duke faculty and students. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Artist Michael Rakowitz tackles the complex questions of history, heritage, and identity. The 2020 Nasher Prize honors his pioneering sculpture, like The Invisible Enemy Should Not Exist, which responds to the looting of the National Museum of Iraq in Baghdad. Experience the work of Michael Rakowitz in person at the Nasher Sculpture Center, on view now through April 2021. Book a ticket in advance at nashersculpturecenter.org. Welcome back. Next up, Lighty Churchman. Churchman joins me to discuss their work on the occasion of Focus Lighty Churchman at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. The show is curated by Allison Hurst and will be on view through March 21st. Churchman's paintings address a seemingly endless array of subjects, and in so doing take on the infinite abundance of images in modern society. The Hessel Museum of Art at Bard College in New York has hosted a survey of Churchman's work. They have been included in group shows at museums such as the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles and the New Museum and MoMA PS1 in New York. Lighty Churchman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, thank you. Seems like everybody who has written about your work in the last two or three or four years first writes about how you will paint anything. Is that how you think of your painted address of the world, or is that more critics needing to find a foothold and thus starting with how a subject of your work is breadth itself? The, the, the truth really is, is yeah, that I, I really give myself complete and total freedom in the studio. So with that said, if I decide to start making the same thing over and over, then that idea of making everything different, then that would also change, right? Like, so 
there isn't a formula in that way. But I do think that why make something at all? And so, you know, and most ideas initially seem unnecessary. So you just begin. And I just let every painting be its own kind of project. The size of it, how I paint it, what it's about, you know, how it becomes something. But I think that sort of coming of age in a in a in a queer community that is you know and artistic like kind of art queer community you know learning a lot about like gay liberation queer liberation liberation in general you can be any one you can do anything and if people don't agree with you then that's not your problem and then I was kind of recently linking it to I remember you know and then going to going to a graduate school at Columbia and kind of learning a lot more about what other artists have been doing. And, you know, irony was like ruling the moment and kind of still is. I, maybe it's not anymore. But I remember hearing about, and I don't know if I have the name, but like artists were starting to create alternate personas. And I remember thinking, you know, and I think we all did. We're like, wow, that's really, really interesting. Like someone could say, well, now my name's Audrey and I make work about biology and photographs or you know and just they were they gave them the freedom to do something they actually wanted to do and I remember just kind of thinking that's really interesting but why don't you just give yourself the freedom to do that so I think that I think I was realizing like maybe around that time I just you know let go of any you know need to be something consistent at all and I also did want to kind of move beyond paintings, pictures that were kind of geared towards echoing back to my own queer community in turn kind of this sort of way. So I think things just started to started making video and then I started just bringing painting back into that. But the paintings were just sort of everything and anything that I wanted them to be. I mean, I think as long as you give something a lot of attention and care and kind of let it let it become something something new and different than it does I don't know I really enjoy seeing a, a lot of different paintings and how they they start to connect together through their differences and similarities but I think that it's really fun to see things that you don't expect to see I just don't feel like I love all different types of painting and there's so many decisions to be made that I just kind of feel really good about allowing them all to emerge when when necessary you know you kind of talk about paintings and images the way I think we're more accustomed to hearing photographers talk about the ubiquity of images and how, you know, for a photographer in 2021, a photographer has to reckon with how there are an infinite number of images in, in today's world and different photographers have dealt with that in different ways. You know, you have, you have Wolfgang, Wolfgang Tillmans who likes, I think what you just said, which, which is kind of making pictures and finding points of commonality and reference within them and, and, and seeing how they, they stick together. Do you think of the ubiquity of images as being an equal challenge for a painter as for a photographer? I'm interested in the mind, actually. And so I don't know. There's so many images. Yes, that's just the air we live in, you know, right? I mean, so of course, that's going to come into my work because I am in this time and I am really aware of it and I work with this moment. So to not have tons of imagery would be would be different. So I think that I'm just working with 
things as they are now. Like we just see images all day long. So it's just as common as, you know, people used to make phone calls all day long or something. And let's, let's talk about a couple of the, the paintings in the show at the modern. And let's start with iPhone 11 from 2019, 20. I understand that the source image, if you will, the specific images motivation for the painting came from a billboard you saw on FDR Drive in New York. Got it. But are there art historical contexts in which you think of that painting or that you think of that painting as addressing? I think it reminded me of like Space Odyssey or something. <laughs> it was just more like, oh, this is like Time Magazine, like Man of the Year or, some, or Person of the Year. It was just sort of like, there it is. That's what we look like. Because <laughs> there, there are a couple of paintings or a couple of artworks that I think of right away. One of them is is Rene Magritte's The False Mirror, the painting at MoMA of an eyeball with the sky reflected in it, the way the way we look. And the other is Jasper Johns's The Critic Sees, which of course is a punny joke about how, I mean, I don't know, it's more punny than it is funny, at least to me. Johns's The Critic Sees, you know, whereby there's a pair of glasses that don't see because they're bronze. And kind of those those painterly because that's a John sculpture, but John's is very much a painter. Th- those kind of painterly riffs on seeing and not seeing and what we see and what we don't see. And I guess I think of iPhone 11 as kicking the can forward a generation or three. When you said Magritte, I actually just, I thought of the painting where it's the guy, it's him looking in the mirror and he sees this the back of himself. Oh, that's interesting. I get it. I feel that here. Like, Oh, all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is like an iPhone looking at itself in the mirror or something. Well, and also one of those three, well, you know, on an iPhone or any any smartphone, you can press a little fake button and it will reverse what camera is taking the picture, right? You know, one other thing about this painting that's that's pretty rad is that Terry Winters owns it. The painter Terry Winters. Is that an accident of of accidents or is there a relationship? There, I mean, is there a, is there a why this painting ended up in Terry Winters's hands? I think that, you know, because of the pandemic, I haven't gotten to go visit with him and you know talk more about it. But I think he really wanted a painting from the show, and so and Matthew was really excited about that. And Matthew being Matthew Marks, yeah, Matthew Marks, and so and you know Terry's at the gallery too, and but I actually don't know exactly how this came about. Two other paintings at the Modern I'd like to raise. One is Cute Jug from 2019, which is about the size of a piece of paper. We'll have an image on manpodcast.com. And The Rose Garden from 2019, which is about twice as big, almost twice as big as, as Cute Jug. These are paintings which, like a lot of the other things you do, are full of art historical references. But these in particular feel cropped, free, feel like you have tightly culled a previously existing image and jammed the rectangle with something. Is that way of, of building an image something of which you're conscious? Is the tightness of that cropping an intentionality? I think so, to some extent. I like having things you know, sometimes be in a in a kind of natural environment that they're in or whatever. But sometimes, yeah, I think that it feels less 
about your the artist's lifestyle and more about a sharp attention, more the way we, yeah, we, we move our attention around. So something comes really sharp into focus. And then the longer you kind of concentrate on it, the more you, you really study it and it's kind of is there, it isn't there, that kind of fluctuates. So yeah, I think that I, I like the way it feels really intimate. And yeah, I do like that tension tension around the borders. I mean, a lot of times I also kind of I paint my own border around something in a way, giving it that emphasis. Like one of those ways I can always tell for myself that a painting is is really good is when I remember it as being bigger than it is. You know, when in my mind's eye, a painting is 36 by 24, even though in real life it's like 24 by 12. And so then when I see it again two years later, I'm surprised, oh, I thought that was bigger. And something about the way images sit in your paintings, this is this is true of another painting in the, in the modern show, White Girl from 2019. Something about the way you use space within your rectangle enforces that. And I, and I think you do it in a number of your paintings that address Marsden Hartley, too, where, where sometimes the figure in that painting, in, in, in your address of Hartley, thunders forth, seems to be busting out of the rectangle, which it must be said is something Hartley did, too, in, 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 a, in, a, in a different way. All of which is a long way toward asking, why does our mutual god hero Marsden Hartley interest you? There's a few things. I think the way he, you know, the way he paints just, you know, is, I think that was probably the first thing that his clouds, his landscapes, the way he paint, you know, when he was in Germany, he did abstraction with all the badges, the soldiers. And I just love all, I love all of his work. I like all his, you know, periods. And then finding out he was a amazingly sad gay man. And, you know, a lot of, he was very spiritual and then there's Maine, which is like, you know, I'm in Maine right now. I spend a lot of time here. But that, you know, that's just kind of like a cherry on the pie, I guess. But I think it's his sadness, though. I think it's the sadness. I, I love sadness. So, can I interrupt for just a second? Sadness in his biography or sadness in the paintings themselves? In the paintings themselves. Is there a title of, of painting? No, no. I was just asking if you, if you, no, I just meant it more in the sense of, because there are kind of maybe especially Hartley's paintings of men are often kind of vaguely elegiac. I don't know, wistful? Is wistful a good word? And and of course, some of them are memorial. But yes, there is a, there is a sadness in many of his paintings. There's exuberance too, though. I mean, like his, his paintings of open windows and flowers are, just make you want to levitate off the floor. Absolutely. I mean, I feel really connected to him in that way because I think a lot of my work is feels very has that kind of exuberance in a way, like colors and just, you know, taking on this like the biggest view of of life and experience. But also the colors and exuberance is like that's pain, you know. But it's it's transformed into a painting that connects with other people and, you know, we all have that in common that pain. So it really brings you in and you love him for that. Like he's not just painting because he's like having a good day. You know, it's just not that. <laughs> it's like, and you never get the sense Hartley was painting for a show, right? I mean, he was painting because it was a daily practice, not because there was a deadline because there was an opening on March 23rd. Right. 
But he wanted that too, though, right? I mean, I remember, you know, reading that, like, he really wanted to be, like, painting Mount Katahdin at the end of his life was a specific decision because he's like, all right, I want, I'm going to get well known by being like an American painter, Maine, like trying to find his, his lane, I guess. I don't know. There, there is, there is no artist in American history who more successfully joined ideas that came from European modernism to America's first intellectual flowering, which happened in New England and in landscape paintings of New England, including of Maine, uh, and especially of Katahdin by Frederick Church and, and Sanford Gifford and others, and that at the end of his life, he felt confident enough in the successfulness of his lifelong project that he could take on Cezanne, you know, the, the font of European, mod or a key font of European modernism with a subject that was a key subject, if not the key subject of 19th century American painting, you know, up there with Niagara, like the confidence and, and hubristicness of that. And then to have pulled it off, ah, pretty great, rare and great. Your 2018 painting mother, I'm not sure I could nail it down, but to me it feels very much like an address of Hartley's German officer paintings that, that you mentioned a moment ago. Yeah, yeah. The border around it is from that. So you, yeah, my, my question is going to be, was that an address of, of, of Hartley's German officer painting? So I think you're saying yes. What do you mean by address? Oh, you're kind of starting there and then making making the way those paintings were built your own. And those paintings were built including the border, those paintings were built with kind of by, by breaking pictorial rules, by being abstract and representational at the same time, which would have been increasingly out of vogue in Europe at the time. And then, of course, you know, a painter is never supposed to hold, a, like you're not taught to hold together a painting with an empty black void at the heart of a painting. And in the, at, in the middle of Mother is a jagged black void. Yeah, let me try to remember. I think, yeah, I started with the border of his on the weirdest, it's the weirdest size canvas, too. It's just like really tall and skinny. 66 by 43, more or less. Yeah, I think that, you know, that was a, a certain mood, just, yeah, just being interested in making a kind of impossible painting where it's like everything, you know, one move, and then you're like, you have no idea what you would you kind of ruin the painting with every move <laughs> in a way. It's like no clue how I'd keep going with this. Cause if you just, then you add like a yellow dash lines, it's like, what is this? You know? So it kind of always felt, yeah, like a dare to do that. There is something really fun about splitting a canvas in two. Cause it, it just sort of like ruins it from the beginning. So you kind of, you don't have to worry about ruining it later. It's just, yeah, so start there. I, I should note you 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 split the canvas in two twice within the painting. There's the vertical black void I referenced a moment ago, but there's also kind of a diagonal black and yellow line that runs across the middle of the canvas almost all the way that, that splits it again. And then there's some other kind of yellow diagonals that maybe don't quite make it all the way across the painting in a kind of Diebenkornian way that also come close to splitting it. And then, you know, there are other little kind of rule-breaking moments that are pretty amusing. You know, there's a weed in the lower right-hand corner of the painting. There is the, the word Egypt in black letters on a blue ground. 
uh, reminds me, of course, of the great Charles Demuth painting at the Whitney called My Egypt. It's packed full of kind of Hartley and his contemporaries in a, I don't know, promiscuous way, which is, which is a lot of fun, at least for me. <laughs> What's the artist's name for My Egypt? Uh, Charles Demuth, D-E-M-U-T-H, um, which is, of course, a blue painting. You know, it's, 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 it's blue and white in those diagonals, and those same diagonals are in, not those same diagonals, but diagonals also kind of hold down mother, your mother. I mean, your painting, Mother. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know. It just feels like there's a relationship there. And of course, the, the, all, all of the words also kind of reference John Maron's, I'm sorry, Charles Demuth's portraits of many of his fellow moderns, which used text to suggest portraiture. So this painting references Charles Demuth in many ways, but I didn't really know that. I thought about it as like, well, maybe it starts with the way it ends. But it turned into like a sort of, you know, city scene with the taxi. It's like taxi, taxi. And then it kind of turns into a, I don't know, to me it turned into a feeling of destruction and future and how are things going to change and, you know, how are we going to keep communicating? And then it kind of, yeah, then it kind of ends with like mother. It just sort of goes into just mother universe. But then... I think it kind of started in that way because it was like broken and almost like the you're going to fall off the cliff. So there's like the harmony, disharmony in there. I don't know. What did it make you feel like to see it? Because I just have no, I don't know. Well, I'm broken. So I always approach things from an art historical point first. So I guess where I started was seven art historical references hit me at once. I saw a couple shapes that reminded me of Carol Dunham and Elizabeth Murray, one of whom one of whose work I like more than the others. And and then that weed in the lower right-hand corner where the silver panel with the red crosses on it appears to be pulling back, being pulled back to reveal the weed. It's just, you know, th- there are a lot of kind of art historical and painterly moves on on the canvas. It's like a it's like a a jazz solo. It's it's there's a lot of showing off there. And I love that stuff. I'm a total nerd for that stuff. And the, and the reference to the, the Hartley border. And, of course, John Maron, who, like, I swear to God, there's some John Maron in this painting, even though if I can't quite explain how. But, you know, John Maron painted his canvases, especially his oil paintings. I guess maybe only his oil painting canvases. I'm sorry, he painted his frames, his oil painting frames. And that sort of lives here, too. And then just that all of it is going on at once. Also, you are not, this is not a criticism. This is just an observation. You can be, you know, like Wolfgang Tillman's again, often anti-compositional in your paintings. And and this is a really composed painting. This is a really mindfully composed painting. It took a while. <laughs> it had to literally, like it, it was in the bathtub, you know, like I took it away. Like it just had to be taken out of the room, like, I think it was made over a few years. It was just sort of, you know, the one you pull out, you're like, all right, if I'm, you know, I'll probably just do something bad. So I might as well do it to the bad painting. You know, it's like, it's a fun prop. Like the whole thing is like a problem. Right. And so it's kind of fun, but you, you can't put a, you're like, not going to, it's not going to be done soon, you know, kind of thing. But yeah, it was, it's fun. Yeah. It's, it's a painting that has 17 ideas or more than that, probably 37 ideas going on at once and while i 
again, just to use Wolfgang Tillman's thing, as I seem to be stuck on him as a reference point, you know, Tillman's is really happy for there to be about two ideas in every image. And then Tillman's relies upon hanging 73 photographs together to put together 146 ideas. You know, he, he has other ways of getting complication and many ideas onto a wall. And, and here, and, and so sometimes you do that. Sometimes you have one or two ideas in a painting and, and you let the grouping create the complication. And here is a painting in which all of the complication is within a single rectangle. And so it's an exciting counterpoint. Yeah. I, I, and I mean, I guess back to making things all really different from each other, you know, that's, that's the fun of it is that like this painting started as just kind of a dare, you know, or just, I feel like making a problem. And then it's just really also fun to do, let's say cute jug just kind of happened pretty, pretty quickly, but it's just kind of nice to have a painting that can just be not, you know, like you can just bring in a different sense of ease, less complication. I like having that variety. Lady Churchman. Thank you. Yeah. Great. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.